This is Mike Montero. I'm Erica Hall. This is Larissa Berger. We're broadcasting from Mule Design Studio in beautiful North Beach, San Francisco. This is Voice of Design. Hello, and welcome to The Voice of Design. I'm Erica Hall. And I'm Larissa Berger. This is Mike Montero. And today we have a very special guest all the way from the greater Washington, D.C. area, I think. That's fair. that's, that's fair. I don't, I, as a Californian, I've never understood the East Coast geography of things. We have Mr. Dan Brown, the founder of Eight Shapes. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Welcome to the program. I've been down for a while and he's fantastic. And we will start the hazing with our, our traditional first question. We this went season. to a baseball game with Dan once. That was, I oh. forgot about that. We did. We went and, uh, we went and saw the Nats. The Nats. Yeah. The Expos, really. I mean, as far as... Fine. The Expos. I'm not giving up on that. (laughs) Good luck with that. I'm sure they'll come back. I remember it being warm. That's that's really all I remember. It was blazing hot. It was in a swamp. They built their park in a swamp. Yeah. We built the whole city in a swamp. Actually, I was not there when it was built. So it was built in a swamp. Like much of the East Coast. Hey. What's your issue with the East Coast, Erica? Yeah, seriously. Oh, it's going to be it's going to be that kind of conversation. I have no issue with the East Coast. I enjoy the East Coast and, you know, I I went there for college to the East Coast to see it and experience No, you went you went to college in New Hampshire. That's not the East Coast. <laughs> That's a really good point. Yeah, it's true. There yeah, New Hampshire has a coastline. Mm. That's New England. Yeah, you went, New England. You went to college in New England. Okay. Well, New England the East is Coast. its own Thing like LL Bean, yeah, New England, New England. So, okay, so what's the difference between New England and the East Coast? New England sucks. <laughs> Ouch! It's a good place to go. New to England college, is great. Yeah. yeah, but then not. Well, my sister lives in Boston. Yeah, so that's fine. Hateful town. <laughs> <laughs> I used to live in Boston. Many fine people live in Boston, but I, I agree that the town is probably not. My favorite place. Maybe, maybe that's the person who gave you four stars. Oh yeah, on the podcast. I'm totally <laughs> the one person totally a mass hole. Yeah. Was like <laughs> two stars, no reason. Fuck off. <laughs> oh, they're giving us stars Boston. now. Wow. Oh yeah, yeah. Please, please rate our podcast highly. Thank yeah. you. New England is lovely. It's just not the. I agree. It's not the East Coast. It's not know? the East Coast. Yeah. Okay. Where's the East? Where's okay? So where's the line? Mm. I personally think it's Connecticut. Like yeah. Connecticut's the yeah, transition I can buy that. state. Once you enter tri-state, you're no longer in New yeah, England. See, what's a tri-state? The tri-state. New Jersey, Connecticut, and New York. The tri-state yeah. depends on where you're from. That's true. true. Because anywhere you live, there's a tri-state area yep. back east. Except so, here. Where I state. grew up, tri-state <laughs> was was Pennsylvania, the non-shitty half, uh, and Jersey and Delaware. That was the tri-state area. But in the shitty part of Jersey. Wow, what's the non-shitty part of Jersey? Oh, Oh, didn't see that coming. Hey, did you want to do a design podcast, Erica? 
Yeah, yeah, sure. No, it's it's a it's a very important discussion. And there's now a venture capitalist trying to turn California into a tri-state area, and that is going to be what? on our ballot in the fall. I don't get it. So like California exists as three states. Exactly. Because Draper's out of his mind and wants to destroy California. So it's who, like who Southern- is this? Who's who's the idiot doing this? Tim Draper, right? That's easy to it's remember. Yeah. Mad Men. That's yeah. that's not even So it's on our ballot because people can put batshit initiatives on the California ballot. Yeah. Yeah. So three Californias, which is basically like the Bay Area, uh northern the California where we grow the weed. So it's basically where Silicon Valley is, where we grow weed, and where all the Republicans are. So that would be the three states of Cal- like California own, tri-state area. It's like your own New Jersey. Yeah, New here. Jersey. Uh, yeah. yeah. So don't Drugs. Do, don't do that. Can we can we campaign on this podcast to say please, please vote against Wait, so that. what's the what's the motivation? Does is there like more federal funding for like tri states? I, I don't it's three states, six senators. Yeah. Yeah. But more oh. Republicans. Republican oh. senators or something. I don't who knows? That I just leave leave California alone. <laughs> so yeah. So let's uh we could we could talk a little bit about it. so that this is the voice of people with opinions about the regions of America. And opinions about everything. Opinions about everything. But now we'll we'll turn to design and uh, and ask ask Dan, uh, so how how would you define the job of a designer? You're a designer. I don't know. It's, it's exhausting to think about the question. I think <laughs> I think part of the problem is uh, that there are myriad functions of a designer and that because of the diversity of the things that we do and engage with, there are a variety of definitions. So when I teach workshops or talk to people about this, I might present actually several of the definitions that are worthwhile. One of the ones that we hear a lot about is design is problem solving. Mm-hmm. And I feel anxious about that because then it sets us up or sets up the process of design as separating understanding the problem from solving the problem. And I think that these two things are interconnected. Uh, we've heard that, you know, the definition of a designer is someone who renders intent, right? Jared Spool uses that definition. I've never heard of him. Well, he's from he the East Coast. He lives in Boston. Yeah, oh, right. The problem. <laughs> he doesn't even live in Boston. He lives outside Boston. On the outskirts. Yeah. Oh, or the greater Boston area. I don't know if it's greater. <laughs> he lives in the vicinity of Boston. Anyway, and I think that's fine. I don't know that it's anything I can do with. Recently, I taught a workshop on facilitation, and sometimes I just define design as facilitation, right? The process of bringing voices together to address the needs of users, say. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. I like that definition. We haven't had that one yet. Design is facilitation. Yeah. So, so what do you talk about in your facilitation workshop? So many things. What I try and do is break it down because the reason why I th- I equate design and facilitation is that I feel like when we're in a conversation, we end up sort of playing that role of drawing people in. And when people don't know what to do, they often look to us, the designer, to say, what do we do now? So I talk about two scenarios. One scenario is where we are asked to create a structured workshop where we can have an agenda and have pre-planned activities to draw things out of people. The other thing that I talk about is more ad hoc, right? You show up for a meeting and 
no one really knows what we're doing here. Or you have a need to kind of bring people together, but you don't have time to plan what that thing looks like. So your role there is less to provide answers and more to draw people out, to bring in myriad perspectives, to get lots of ideas out on the table. Yeah, that's a a really good thing to bring up and I think teach people because that is so much of our work facilitating those conversations. And sometimes it's shocking to us that the organizations, and I guess I guess this is why people hire us to do things, is that so many organizations do their work without really intentionally thinking about that facilitation, without thinking about things in terms of goals and outcomes and roles, even though that sounds like the most elementary and basic. Like when people first started talking about design thinking, and, uh, you know, and I made fun of it for a good solid couple of years. Before I'm still really, making fun of it. Well, well, yeah, I'm not saying the making fun of it has necessarily stopped. But before I really knew what it was. And then I then I said, OK, well, now, you know, much like with Lean In, I'm like, OK, I have to understand it before I can fully criticize it. I said, OK, I'll dig around on the IDO stuff and read about it. And when I read about it and, and realized oh, it's having a goal. Like that to me seemed to be the core of design thinking is have a clear goal and facilitate iterative problem solving towards that goal. I'm like, businesses don't do this. And then you go into businesses and find out they totally don't do that. They will just get people in a room. They will invite whoever. And then they'll be sitting there in a room, half of them on their laptops. And some people will command the floor and maybe they'll have this thing. And all they know is they have to fill an hour And nobody's sure why they're there if they've met the outcome. And I see this again and again in all these organizations. And they're not sure who's really responsible for what in that conversation or what their participation is going to be. And everybody's too afraid of each other to like step out unless they're a real sociopathic jerk. Like that's often the person who like takes the reins in an unfacilitated conversation. Yeah, I think it's... I don't know. I find it hard to imagine that that still happens. But then to your point, it does, right? And yes. It, and it's, it's, you think of it as a cliche, like we called a meeting and no one knows why, but those things still happen. Mm-hmm. I think design is well positioned and always has for a while to take the reins to sort of drive uh, that conversation because we sit at the center of so many of these uh, processes and we bring, I believe, bring the practice requires an empathy, I hate to use that word, but sort of a, a driving force to understand and hear multiple perspectives. And I think there's a lot of fear that if you bring those perspectives to the table, now you're responsible. You have some responsibility towards them. So what do you do with them? Or how do you make sure that in the work that follows, you kind of give light to all of those? And I think that outside of the practice of design, often Um, we see clients kind of the work can get watered down because there have been so many perspectives and and people don't really know how to process that. And I guess I often think about how like design cannot be a series of compromises. It's a different thing. Like we want to bring forward those perspectives, but we don't want the work to suffer for it. So how do you, do you address that in your workshop? Yeah. I mean, I I start by talking about outcomes. Like what is, what is it that we want out of this thing? Right. Yeah. We show up, we don't, necessarily know, but we have to establish what that outcome is. One of the possible outcomes is um, just to follow the diverging and converging framework for talking about design. Sometimes we do want a lot of ideas Mm -hmm. out on the table because we're at that stage of the process. But sometimes we're at the 
a different stage where we want to converge, right? We want to arrive at a set of priorities or what have you. I think it's important for a facilitator to establish that context, right? We can't just throw everything in. We can't just prioritize everything as number one. What do we need to do to zero in on what's most important? I'm not afraid of the word compromise, right? I mean, I think it's sort of a necessary evil in the kind of work that we do. And it may be that like engineers, we feel a strong sense of we can't do everything, right? I certainly, the people that I get to work with have a sense of we can't do everything. So now we need to establish criteria for winnowing what our priorities are uh, and then pulling those up to the top. What are the things that we're going to focus on for this sprint or this release or whatever it is? Right. Introducing a hierarchy. Yeah. 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 I think that prioritization is not compromise. You know, I, I think because I, I, I see compromise as, say, stepping away from the core principles, right? To say, oh, we're we're not going to fulfill these essential principles. Like, we're going to compromise on that. But I see as prioritization or like that winnowing down, you know, I, I guess it depends on really where you see like the heart of what you're trying to do. If it's like, oh, it's really important to me that we get this full vision out there versus, okay, we have something that we're we're trying to accomplish in the world and we're going to you know, get as much of that as we can according to some values right. and not compromise on those. Yeah, I mean, the, the way we define compromise in Washington, D.C. is everybody is unhappy. Right? <laughs> exactly. So, and I think the difference here is some of us may be unhappy, but at least we know why we're unhappy, right? At least we've sort of identified a set of criteria that helps us say this is why we've pushed these things to the top. Well, it depends what we're compromising around, right? I mean, that definition of compromise, which is generally the what I see most often in workplaces, is I want thing A, you want thing B, let's come up with something that makes that 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 helps no one. Right. To me, a good compromise is I think this is the thing that we need to build and put out. Well, we can do 80% of that during the next release. That is is a good uh, definition of compromise for right. me. When it's goal-driven and it's not just about feeling better, right? When you're not saying like, oh, well, I don't want to feel this tension with you. Are we talking about feelings? I don't want to talk about feelings. We're yeah, talking but about I think, design. But I think that's what happens. In, in, There's no room for feelings we have We've had plenty of clients where it's an uncomfortable process and they would rather just kind of like show some kind of goodwill because they have to go to work every day with these people. We get the, the benefit of coming back to our design shop and removing ourselves from that, right? But a lot of times people would rather sacrifice the work if it means that they can keep a relationship with a coworker going better. And I think that, you know, bringing in the criteria is a way to allow for people to be wrong. And that's what to me is tough about compromise because there is a right and there is a wrong and just watering down everyone's opinion I mean, won't get you to a good outcome. Present company excluded. <laughs> people generally shy away from confrontation, right? They don't want to engage in any sort of conflict and it makes them uncomfortable I can't, to disagree. I can't imagine living that way. Yeah. Being and, from the East Coast. Like, <laughs> that, that's how you solve a problem. You solve a problem by, by addressing the conflict head on. You're finding out what's, at the, what's the seed of that conflict and, and uh, otherwise, what you're doing is you're just building a giant wall around the conflict and agreeing, okay, we're never going to talk about this again. 
which I just described all of our parents' relationships. (laughs) (laughs) I I think the challenge, if I may, just the Mm -hmm. challenge with that, though, is most people have trouble separating the conflict about what we're talking about from a personal Yeah, absolutely right. Well put, yeah. So, Dan, you wrote a book called Designing Together. I did. That I I really like and and I recommend to people because no one is taught to make that separation, right? Nobody's taught the difference between a good fight and a bad fight. And so many people go into workplaces, especially in the kind of Silicon Valley startup Darwinian environment where they think, oh, there's only going to be one winner. And that's like fractal. It goes down to to the interpersonal level and up to the, you know, the huge, like once we're a giant public company, we have to dominate the marketplace. And I think companies in an unexamined way run like that. And so it's like, okay, well, we're going to fight to see who has the best idea. And that comes down to like who can bully other people or who can take the credit. And, And corporate cultures kind of support this even while they're giving lip service to collaboration. And what I really like about designing together is you say that conflict is essential to collaboration. And this is something when I, we do our collaborative research workshop, I, I quote, because I tell people, you have to be able to have that conflict because that tests the ideas. It makes them stronger. And you really want to get the people who can very assertively represent a point of view, but separate that out from a personal preference to say, oh, I'm representing the customer, or I'm representing the performance of the system, or I'm representing the business goals, and I will fight for that with you, but we have to have a shared goal. And and that's what I really like, and I feel people don't understand that enough. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And if we talk about design, one of the definitions I have of design is sort of a series of decisions that we make together. And we start out with big, hard decisions, and we go into smaller Maybe not so hard decisions, but they're all dependent on each other, right? So at the end, we're talking about what color is the button or what the label needs to be. But at the beginning, we're talking about who is the user? What are we trying to accomplish here? And I think think you use the word fractal, right? It's like we have to have a conflict about every one of those decisions because it makes the decision itself stronger so that when we get to those later decisions, we can rely on the previous ones that we made, the fact that we arrived at that decision together through that conflict. Uh, you called it good fight versus bad fight. I, In the book, I refer to it as healthy versus unhealthy conflict. Mm-hmm. Healthy conflict is we're going to have a conversation, we're going to disagree, but at some point we're going to arrive at a decision that one or both of us will be happy with what we know is the right one to move forward. Mm-hmm. Unhealthy conflict is when people can't separate the work from the people who are engaged in that conversation. Mm-hmm. This is why I enjoy working with journalists. Do you ever work with journalists? No. It's amazing. We've been lucky enough to work with them on a few projects. And generally what they do is they decide, okay, we're going to argue about this for 30 minutes or 15 At the end of those 15 minutes, there's going to be a winner, and everybody gets in line with that decision. Go. Because these are people who have daily deadlines. They have to do something. All I mean, they have to have these arguments, and they have to come to the decisions on these arguments. And then, at least time-honored tradition, these things go in print. Yep. And at that point, done. Argument is over. We've also worked at places where, you know, we've come together— had the conflict, made a decision, 
And then there'll be like people on the other team who passively, aggressively go behind everybody's back to undermine the decision that that was made. Yes. That's horrible. And we had a an interesting conversation over Skype where oh, yeah. we talked about, and I use this phrase all the time, Erica, that you used, status anxiety. Yeah. Because a lot of the work that I end up working in what you might call non-commercial organizations. Mm-hmm. And so there's not a lot of, I don't know, black and white that they yeah. can look clarity. at. To serve. Clarity. Thank clarity. you. Clarity. Because it's about the mission. Yes. right? It's about like not just because with a for-profit company, you can say, oh, this is what will cut your costs and make you more money. Right. And you don't have that clarity in a mission-driven organization. Right. And so what you end up seeing is a lot of people going behind the scenes after the fact when they start to think about how is this going to affect me and my standing in right. an organization. Uh, and so they they do that manipulation. I really try as a facilitator to get that stuff out on the table. Who's going to care about this? Like, who's going to feel affected by these uh, decisions? Can we get those people in the room to talk to them to make sure that they are on board with the direction that we're going? In? So what do you do when you facilitate these discussions and you have say, people at that discussion who are not as engaged, but then after the fact, they do that kind of, they work in the background, behind oh, the scenes. That happens all the time. Yeah. yeah the we, time. we get on the phone for Skype therapy. That's what Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I call Erica, basically. Yeah. I think it depends a lot on the people, which yeah. is a cop-out answer. And it depends on your relationship with the people. Sometimes wish I could cultivate this attitude more, but the attitude that I feel like often works for me is when I feel like I've got nothing to lose. And what I can do there is call people out on their bullshit, right? And I can say things like, did you get what you need out of this conversation? How are you feeling after this? Do you feel like we've made progress, right? We can sort of have that conversation towards the end of a meeting to try and circumvent that that mm-hmm. very issue. Mm-hmm. If things happen later, and I've got one client in particular that I'm thinking about where this happens um, just because of the nature of the collaboration with them, I think there's some sort of project management one-on-one things that one can do, send meeting notes, you know, get some confirmation that this is what we talked about, Mm -hmm. ask if there's going to be any changes. And then uh, one of the things that I like to do is in the ongoing conversations with them, remind them of context, right? So at the very beginning of the next meeting, say, this is what we talked about last time. Is this still true? Did I get this right? Right. So that we're all working from that same foundation. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the one of the reasons I I love arguing during projects is that I trust the people who are arguing. I know where they stand. The people who are sitting there in the corner, Silent. not saying a word, those are the people who I'm thinking this person's going to undermine our work because they're not collaborating. They're not making their opinion felt, but they're taking down notes. And at some point they're going to go behind somebody's back because they're concerned about their status or whatever else or whatever hangups they might have. But the people who are arguing, the people who are active, those people I I trust. Yeah. It's particularly tough because it, you know, this stuff is hard and we bring all these people to the table because we actually need them to help us figure it out. And so I feel like, I don't know, for me, it's so tough when people kind of go away from those and then they make those decisions on their own because it's like we wouldn't have called the meeting if we didn't all need to weigh in 
So just teasing out like a couple of those decisions at the end, like, oh, well, we just have to figure out the color of the button or the label on the button. And it's like, no, these all tie in. And those decisions are made much easier when we have this alignment and they don't feel arbitrary and we don't have to A-B test them to convince ourselves of like something we already know. Yeah. And something that that we talk about a lot is the, the business value of like trust and the business value of honesty. And, and what you said earlier was design is defined as problem solving. And that's a partial definition because it doesn't include understanding the problem. I disagree. And I'd like to get back okay, to that. We will get back to that. And, <laughs> and what we found in our many, many, many years of doing design in the context of many organizations is that when we talk about that upfront kind of research and understanding the problem, working with the organization uh, and understanding the organization and talking to the representatives of the different teams and constituencies is often the most important, quote unquote, research work we do, because then we can understand them as people. Right. And you said, oh, pe- you know, like people are are the problem or the, or the, the difficulty. And that sounds like a cop out. But that really is the hard part of every design problem. It's not even understanding the users because we know what users want. Users want to get their stuff done quickly and confidently, and they want to know the implications of their choices. And we do, we have to do user research for various contexts, but really that is known. You know, it is possible to, to come up with some uh, good design solutions based on some basic understanding, but it is Byzantine Game of Thrones stuff to understand an organization because, because they're so often seemingly irrational because it's all a status negotiation and it's all this internal politics and there's so much fear. Yeah. And so by talking to people and understanding the organization and helping them establish that basis of trust, like a project will be successful to the extent that everyone involved has that trust. And now, Mike, you wanted to say a thing. Problem solving. You said problem solving excludes understanding the problem. Tell me again how you said it. I said that when we frame design as problem solving, yes, one of the underlying assumptions to that that I've seen is that we can separate understanding the problem from solving the problem. But all research on creativity, even informal anecdotes about creativity and innovation, suggests that these two things are linked together. That what really happens when I solve a problem is that I understand the problem. I think I understand the problem. I try and solve it, which helps me understand the problem better which helps me solve the problem better. And it's far more cyclical than it is linear. I, I agree with everything you just said. So Rocking. Yeah. So I'm one of those people that defines design as solving a problem. Mm-hmm. Step one of solving the problem, let's understand it. Yes. I would so say that you I, can't understand it completely uh-huh. until you try and solve it a little bit. Yeah, I get that. Okay, so we're not disagreeing. No, I did disagree with something else you said. Tell me. (laughs) Well, you were saying that you don't trust quiet people. I don't. I don't trust quiet people at all. And what I really liked about what Erica was saying is that the stakeholder interviews are, in in a sense, the most important conversations that we have. Because, yes, we learn about the politics, but we learn about styles, too. And one of the things that I've been thinking a lot about is one of the notions of inclusive design processes— is that we have to accommodate a variety of styles. I'm by nature a quiet person, deliberate. Maybe I'll just call myself deliberate. And so I don't think, I'm not really good at thinking of things on the fly. 
So sometimes I need to sit and listen and then go take a walk or do something to kind of process a little bit. So I may not think of everything in the space of that conversation that we have. Mm -hmm. And I may be quiet so I can listen so that I can process later. It's not that I don't, I, I get that by them being quiet, it makes them seem untrustworthy because you're not getting scheming, yeah, scheming or uh, opaque. But I think the reality is that there are different styles of interaction. One of the reasons why I like those stakeholder interviews is I can find out what the styles of the stakeholders are. And I can also ask them, what's it like to work with this person? Or what do I need to know about working with your boss? Those kinds of things. I totally get what you're saying. And again, I don't, I don't think we're totally disagreeing. So if we're having like a kickoff meeting for a project or if we're like arguing or having a giant strategy session and there's like eight people in the room and seven of them are arguing back, I know what those I know where those people stand. Right. The quiet one, like it could be that they're that they need to mull thing mull things over for a bit. It, you're absolutely right. But at that moment, I do not trust them because I do not know what they're thinking. So I need to go find out. And yes, that's part of my job. Part of my job is to go find out what they're actually thinking. Uh, It's a bit of a pain in the butt because it's extra work for me. But again, that's part of the job. What bugs me is that as somebody who came up from visual design, 95% of the time, that's a visual designer sitting there. Oh, interesting. And these are people who complain about not being heard. They complain about not being given a seat at the table. And then the minute they're given one, they clam their mouth shut. They don't say anything. They don't participate. And then they go back to rolling their eyes and complaining that they weren't heard. And at some point, they make a comp behind your back and show their boss. (laughs) And I've had to deal with those people a lot. And... Part of my job when we start a project is I need to find out where the other visual designers, I'm making air quotes because I hate that phrase, mm-hmm. where are those other visual designers in the building? Why are they or aren't they in these discussions? Should they or shouldn't they be in these discussions? Get them in there if I believe that they belong in there and then get them to talk. Mm. So, so I think one of the reasons that that happens is because we've thought a lot and talked a lot about like, things like design education and and like you teach a presentation workshop to help designers do this. A lot of designers who've, and especially those who've gone to design school, aren't taught, you know, we talked about like people don't understand the difference in good conflict and bad conflict. Mm-hmm. Designers are not taught how much advocating for their work and asking questions to understand the problem and all of that stuff defined as quote unquote soft skills, which is like my next battle. People in design school are taught that they communicate through their artifacts. Absolutely right. And as as Dan said, design is a process of decisions. And we're really trying to shift the conversation away from design as artifacts because now we're talking about these huge systems that cross uh, different platforms and modes of interaction and different devices. So the idea that any artifact can really represent the design or should be the focus of conversation as opposed to an aid in making a decision. Like artifacts have to no longer be the center of the conversation. But all these designers, and especially if you come from graphic or visual design, you speak through your artifact and no one is being taught differently. And also no one is being 
I give in a reward or an incentive for talking. Designers are admired for what they produce. And so I think coming from that, like people do, this is what we found in our work with organizations. And we're shifting our work a lot to do more of this coaching, training, facilitation stuff because people have these internal teams and nobody has been taught this stuff. And so it leads to less horrible conflict. So in a certain sense, I don't fault that designer for acting as they've been conditioned and rewarded and trained to act. And they don't have the tools. The only tools they have are, I can describe my work in terms of design choices I've made, but often that isn't the language of the decision maker. That isn't the language of the other members of the team. And so it's like, it's like if you speak out and you don't have the words or you feel that like, oh, I don't speak this technical language and I'm just going to get shot down and undervalued, then of course you're going to go back and say, well, if I go back and make a really high fidelity artifact that nobody else on the team can make, then I will have their attention and then mm -hmm. I will have their respect. And too many organizations function like that. Design education is sinfully criminal. We're not giving designers the tools that they actually need to do the job. My one caveat that I'll throw on that is that I've had, I've met too many designers over the years who argue to remain a pair of hands. Yeah. And what's funny is that the tools have become so accessible now, right? And they're faster and faster to use. So actually the work left for just a pair of hands is shrinking rapidly. Luckily for designers, the hard work is not in producing those artifacts. It's in working with other people. It's in facilitating these conversations. It's in actually finding the goal of the work. And, and once you have deep clarity on those aspects of the work, the artifact piece is very fast and need not kind of be. But what's so funny is that you, you roll into these companies and everyone's behind a computer. Right. And everybody is spending like 80% of their time in a tool instead of in a environment where they could easily talk to each other and solve problems well, together. I think part of this, like when you look at why we like the web so much, it's because it allows us to avoid interacting with other people because yeah. interacting with other people is really uncomfortable. Stressful. It's super stressful, especially when you don't have a lot of training or you're not like some people are more natural. It, it is true in interacting with people. But if you take designers and you now say that, hooray, the hardest, most important part of your job is now talking with people. All of a sudden, design seems like a much less satisfying profession to, ah, uh, you get to put your headphones on and sit behind a 30-inch monitor and, and create something beautiful and satisfying. And it's like, oh, that work's all gone away. And now design is having important fights about abstract systems, which I love. <laughs> My favorite part of the job was always arguing with people. Always. But, so there's some people for whom their favorite part of the job is sitting behind a computer and creating cool artifacts. Are those people, are we really arguing that those people are becoming obsolete? No. Yes. No. <laughs> yes. My work here is done. <laughs> Thank you for facilitating this conversation. I... I do not think those people are becoming obsolete. I think they are going to find themselves marginalized to the point where they're not part of the decision-making process. They're not part of the problem-solving process. And I think if you're not part of the problem-solving process or you're not, you can't call yourself a designer anymore. 
Okay, so they're not obsolete in the same way that a payphone is not obsolete. You can find them. Oh, wow. I think they're not obsolete in the same way that the sandwich artists at Subway don't get to call themselves chefs. What hmm. happened here? Oh, this we is daily deep. for us. Yeah, this is <laughs> daily. This is what we do, especially the sandwiches. Especially sand. Yeah, sandwiches. I everything mean, comes it's like down. Actually, the most seriously to the sandwich. If if what you're interested in is just touching cold cuts all day or pushing pixels around all day, there will always be a job for you to mm. do because every city has a transit authority or a port authority mm. or a place where people get their sandwiches before hopping on their bus. And those places will always be there for you. You will always be able to have life as a pixel pusher. <laughs> so, But belong- life as a designer is going to be something else completely. Well, I think also designers get really frustrated when they get stuck with clients and eventually the client says, I just want it to be red. Or I think that when you take that, when you accept that framing that you're you're just a pair of hands. You also will never escape those conversations. Right. You'll never escape these like annoying tunnels of subjectivity where at the end of the day, you just got to like do what the client wants because you don't know how to have a conversation at a higher level that's driven towards the goals that gets at solving a problem. Yeah. And the minute you do that, you're not a designer anymore. So I'm going to disagree with Mike again. I think... We keep using the word designer in a sort of monolithic way. Like there's only one type of designer. I agree with Dan. And I... Nobody asked you what you thought. Feel, <laughs> I always want to know what Erica thinks. I feel like... Dan's the, just struggling the, to finish the um, sentence. <laughs> the, that's the story of my life. Um, a better analogy is uh, medicine or surgery, where we have myriad specialties now. And when you go and have surgery, there's not one person in the room doing that surgery. There are many people in the room, and they all play a different role. I speak from experience there, right? And so there are, even for the simplest surgeries, there are four or five different people on that team. Mm -hmm. Design is a team sport, Mm -hmm. and we will always need Varying perspectives, yes, but also varying uh, skill sets and strengths there. I can totally work within this metaphor. Yeah. So every person in the medical profession, doctor, surgeon, when you go to see them, they all start with some variation of the question, what's wrong? Yes. They're trying to find out what the problem is. And anybody who starts with that question and then cares about the answer is doing their job as a medical professional. If I walk into a doctor's office and say, give me Valium, and they write a prescription, they're not a medical professional, or at least they're not ethically a medical professional anymore. They're a pill pusher. That's what I'm talking about. If a client walks into my office and says, I want you to make this, 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 and this, and you don't ask why, and you don't question some of those decisions, if you know they're wrong, you don't get to call yourself a designer. Just took your medical metaphor, wrapped it up in a bow, handed it right back to you, Dan. Okay. Uh, I would um, say that they do get to call themselves a designer if they say... That is not my role. It's like if I needed a surgery and I went to my anesthesiologist and I said, I need surgery and they just put me under, right? I go to the person with whom that process begins. Right. And that's why I said. But the anesthesiologist is still a doctor. 
or a surgeon. But that's what I said. If the if I walk into a doctor's office, right. ask for Valium, and they immediately write me a prescription. Yes. That's that's the metaphor I was working that's with. Well, okay. Going back, I, I, I like, still like you, Dan. I like this idea of, you know, where I like, maybe I still love you. <laughs> clinging to this role like very hard. And I actually totally agree with that. I think that, you know, within Mule, we use designer actually very broadly. Um, we all are designers here. In other work contexts, I think that um, scene that you just set for us of many doctors around an operating table um, totally makes sense. And and for me, what really helps kind of cinch that into place is that the role is less of an identity, like what you went to school for or what you even think that you're personally best at, and more just kind of like a set, a set of point of views that are useful for the problem at that time. And, and so I think it's important for people to actually inhabit, and I see that we do this too, like different roles more vaguely or more abstract in the abstract of where the designer is the one advocating for the user, the project manager is advocating for the project finishing on time, the developer is advocating for aspects of the software concerns that may not, you know, one-to-one necessarily. And I think having all of these concerns in one's head at one time is really difficult. And so inhabiting those roles is extremely important for the field. I, I I love that metaphor. Yeah, I think having a team is is really important. And there's been such a push around the concept. Like when I was a child, unicorns were a cool mythological creature that would be on t-shirts and earrings. And now a unicorn and vans, the sides of vans. Okay, and the sides, the sides of vans. Yeah. And vans, the shoes. Yeah, it was a very the eighties were very vans has never done a unicorn shoe. Well, actually, they have. Oh. They've never done a Lisa Frank partnership. Oh, yeah. that's, that's just too bad. bad. Yeah, we know that. So yeah. unicorns used to be f- fun and and beautiful and kitschy, and then all of a sudden in our professional lives, it's either a company with a billion dollar valuation based on pure speculation, or it's this idea that it's a designer who's like a Swiss Army knife and can do every single thing, kind of poorly or whatever. And I, I just think that's such a destructive concept that that the ideal is like, oh, it's so good that one person can do all of these things. Yeah. Because it's so much better to have these different perspectives in conflict. And unless you're working with like a Smeagol Gollum kind of person, unicorn designer, you're not going to get that good give and take that you can with a team all very strongly representing like different perspectives and having different roles and skills and focuses. Yeah. And I also super hate when like a, a lot We've moved up to super hate. Yeah. An ability is kind of defines like a lane. And when people are working together and it's like, oh, wait, that's in, you know, that's out of your lane because yeah, you're, you're a writer. You can't contribute a perspective on this design problem. So this uh, this yeah. is a metaphor that I've heard Spool talk about really well. Who's that? Uh, the guy who lives outside Boston. Oh, right. The lesser Boston area. Right, the lesser <laughs> Boston area. I know it well. And, it, it, and he ties it to how doctors come up, sticking with our medical uh, analogy a little bit. So when a doctor is going to medical school, they do a rotation. They learn everything. So they're well-rounded. Like every doctor in the world can deliver a baby. Every doctor in the world can check your blood pressure. Every doctor in the world can do a set of basic things in a lot of different professions. 
And there comes a point in their education where they're like, okay, I'm going into general practice. I'm going into family practice. I'm going in, I'm going to be a surgeon or I'm, you know, going to be a proctologist. Who the fuck does that? But having established that general base, they then pick a specialty. Design education, on the other hand, encourages you to go into that specialty as quickly as possible without having that base of general education. That's what I've heard Jared talk about. Interesting. When I do a workshop, I'll ask people, have you ever done a content inventory? And most of the young designers in the room have not yeah. done a content inventory. They've never known pain. And I will, and I will say, <laughs> true. the most controversial thing I'll say is, you're not a web designer until you've done a content inventory. I'm not going to disagree. Like, I feel like it is a rite of passage that we all went through that I think is an important way to understand, to do that rotation, to yeah. kind of understand, yeah. Yeah. here's the one of the necessary evils of building a site, especially a content-driven site, that someone's going to do, even if it's not you all the time, someone's going to do this at some point. So you need to understand why it's important. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you need to know what all the things are, because if you're doing a traditional website, right, that is a repository for content and communication. And so your design is in service of all of those elements. And you need to know what those are and why they exist or why some exist that shouldn't exist in the new system. So yeah, that's a that's a great thing to propose to people. Yeah. And when you're working in a kitchen, you should theoretically be able to slide over to the next station if yep. something happens to the person there and at least understand how to do their job. Maybe not as well as they do, but at least not totally fuck it up. Yeah, not Keep poison, things moving. Not poison the customer. Right. Yeah. Wow. We've gone to a lot of places, and now I think we're Damn. out of time. We're not out of time yet. Okay. We're not like I want to hear about this this new <sighs> card game that you made a card game. Yeah, this is... Well, you make I, a lot of card games. I like cards. I like and you things know, on cards. I, I, so I follow you on Instagram. Why would you do that? Well, because you and your delightful family are always playing some weird-ass game I've never seen. Yeah, we play a lot of games. So I think it's delightful that you take this like op- thing that you obviously enjoy personally, and you figured out a way to bridge that over to what you're doing as a designer. Thank you. We've had a lot of your games here in, in the shop before. Yeah. We've played with a lot of them. They're fun. And you've got a new one, and it's called Lenses? Yeah, it's, I would not call it a, a game, uh, but it is a deck of cards that you can use to address structural challenges, structural design challenges. I have a theory that IA is the hardest part of the work that we do, but that's very self-serving, I know. So... The lenses are meant to offer a variety of perspectives and questions you can ask yourself as you're working through the design of a structure. I feel like part of the challenge is designing a structure is a very deliberate process. It's a very intentional process, but it's also often hard for other people on the team to grok what you're doing because it is so abstract. Yes, I so, so agree with that. And it's the first thing they want to change when it doesn't do for what they purely wanted. arbitrary reasons because they never fully grasped because our artifacts yeah like like showing like we've gotten to the point where we, when we've done big architecture pro, uh, projects not showing a site map to the client team it's like we have to do one and then we'll describe to you what the decisions are that you have to make but 
we will never let you interact with a sitemap in any substantive kind of way because it's a necessary but absolutely opaque deliverable. Yes. And even when they, we do give them that opportunity, I imagine you've felt this pain before, they make these arbitrary decisions, as you say, right? They mm-hmm. move things around and they don't understand just how badly, I was going to say how badly they're breaking things, but maybe a better way of looking at it is how much of an impact those small changes can have on an architecture. Right. And the fact that the changes they're making to the map, like they don't understand what those changes represent for the system, yeah. right? They, they've interpreted the map in a certain way. A lot of times it's hierarchy or it's labeling or it's some sort of way that their work is, they feel their work is not being represented appropriately. Yep. And then they, they change the map and it's like, whoa, that has implications for the system that are not what you're intending. Yes. So use the metaphor before, uh, Gollum and Smeagol, and I will cherish that forever. <laughs> but this set of cards is basically the Gollum to your Smeagol, right? It's a way of uh, asking yourself questions, interrogating the work that you're doing without having to rely on completely educating everyone on how to think this way. Yeah, because the thing is that people who need to be stakeholders in the design process or decision makers, but who are not themselves designers, they don't necessarily need to pick up the skill of working with a very specialized artifact. They're designing, though. Well, they, they are designing. Are they are. Are we going there? They we are, are so going participating there. Participating in the design process. They're designing in the sense that they are making decisions. And if we say design is a series of decisions, not artifacts. They're designing. Yeah. And so we need to help the people we work with by providing the tools and artifacts that best help them make those decisions. And what I was saying is I think the this set of cards is fantastic because a lot of times a sitemap is not a great tool for facilitating informed decision making. Even though it's very convenient and helpful for practitioners, you take it to a team and it can just be a huge distraction. And you have, like, we've had the same conversations over and over again about sitemaps to say, well, this is not hierarchical. It doesn't represent absolutely every piece of information in the whole system, but it's uh, it's so concrete. And so we've found other ways to have those conversations about the decisions and sort of refer to and say that there is a sitemap. What we're talking about, our conversation will influence the sitemap, but who cares about the sitemap? I would say the thing that we've done, we've changed the most in our design practice over the years is radically de-emphasize the information architecture part of the process to say, I totally agree that it's the hardest and the most important, but a lot of times we want to make that the least visible to the client and really focus on, okay, what, what are you communicating? How should we structure that communication? How do we expect people to be interacting with the system? How are they entering it, exiting it? What do they want to do? And we have these conversations with other means. And then we build a sitemap based on that, but say, oh yeah, sitemap is a thing that we're going to make, but you don't, don't worry your pretty head around that. This was our, our last conversation with Dan was like, what, what do we do to convey aspects of the sitemap and get to a place where we can actually make a decision, but not get lost in the, Honestly, a sitemap is just a bad interface for the audiences that we're describing because, you know, it it has a bunch of things and then 
you want to move them around because that's what you do when you see things connected to other things and you want to build associations. And it seems like this exciting thing, but you're not just rearranging your own furniture. It's like the furniture that everybody, right. yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like setting up a medical office, right? Yes. Or an operating mm-hmm. table much more than it yeah. is your living room. Yes. And, and we understand what sits beneath those boxes and lines, right? But it's hard to convey that. You know, I'm listening to you all talk and I'm thinking, but I don't want to exclude people from the conversation, right? Right. But I like, Erica, where you're going, which is, can we change the nature of the conversation to involve them in the process without having them to have to sort of learn an entirely new skill set or perspective? And it's kind of an interesting challenge to think about. So, yeah, we've been talking a lot to clients with, with a, a various degrees of success because even RFPs are written around artifacts. Like we've gotten RFPs that say, oh, we expect this set of wireframes and a sitemap. And it's like, no, that's not what you're paying us to do. You're paying us to help you design this system for some business purpose. And that's just a thing that gets made along the way that doesn't really matter. That's not the value we're delivering. And so we've been really working to uncouple that because also we don't want to get in any kind of these quasi-religious wars about, you know, oh, it's jobs to be done. It's not personas. It's this artifact. It's not sitemaps. And so I like what you've done here with the information architecture lenses, which is add another artifact to facilitate the conversation because my position on all of this is whatever works. Yes. Whatever helps people feel confident that they're making informed decisions. And that is really going to vary from project to project. So this is a really nice. So, so talk about how you develop these. A little sure. Bit. What, and I launched them at the IA Summit, which is a conference that used to happen uh, every year. And I had this fear, harking back to the religious wars that you talked about, that someone would say, you're launching a new tool. What are you taking away from me? And so what I wanted to say is, Whatever works, right, to your point, right? right? This is something else that you can use Mm -hmm. when, as we're dealing with these increasingly complicated challenges, there are 51 lenses. Each one has its own card, the lens's name, and it's got a main question that it asks. So one of my favorite ones is, what kind of precedent are you setting by making this decision? Then it has a number of other smaller questions, so to speak, that give you some more things to think about. So with the precedent setting one, it might be, would it be okay for someone else to make this decision, right? So it kind of digs into that a little bit so that as you're looking at the structure that you've designed, you can ask, okay, well, I've decided to categorize this content in this uh, group, in this category. Is it okay for other people to do mm-hmm. that as well? Or am I, is this an exception that I've come up with? Some of the lenses overlap, a little bit, but I think that's okay because they all come at it from unique perspectives, even if the perspectives are somewhat similar. Are these for agencies to use with their clients or are they are they also good for internal teams to use amongst themselves or all of the above? I think everybody should have a set everybody of Everybody should get a set of these. Yeah. And where can everybody get these? I think the easiest way is to follow IA Lenses on Twitter And I've got a link there to my print-on-demand vendor that will print up a set of cards and send them to you. Now, how long does that take? Um, They're usually pretty good. If there's uh, just one or two decks, they usually turn things around in a week or so. So that's eye lenses? I-A lenses. I-A lenses. Yes, as in information architecture lenses. 
And that's the Twitter handle. Yes, all one word, no spaces. Got it. IA Lenses on Twitter. Yes. Maybe one day I'll build a website, but I feel like I don't, does. I don't Nobody does that anymore. Yeah. I don't know how to do that anymore. Website, no. yeah. yeah. Other you people also do that. just not too long ago published a new book. I did. I did. A book on design discovery. Design so discovery. That very first part of the design process. And it's less about the specific activities that you would do as part of discovery and more how all of these things fit together. There's already an amazing book on research. (laughs) And what I wanted to do was um, say, okay, there are research activities, but there are lots of things that we do as part of discovery. How do all of those things stitch together? And what does, what comes out of the other end of that? Oh, that sounds good. And I can get that at a bookapart.com, right? It's true, Mike. That is exactly where you can get it. A bookapart.com. You didn't write it to sit in a warehouse, did you? A bookapart.com. Though I think they've sold out of their first printing. Well, you know what? So. You want you do want to get the paperback because yeah. the author's margins on the paperback are better. Oh, that's one reason, yeah. yeah you can true. also take notes in yeah. the margins. Yeah, yeah. that too. And yeah. Actually, my friend just ran her first discovery ever. No kidding. And when we were in New York, she was kind of like, oh my God, what do I do? And my the first thing I told her was to get Dan Brown's book. Did she get the right Dan Brown's book? <laughs> she, she ran Discovery using the Da Vinci what code. What does Da Vinci yeah. dude have to it do happens. with yeah. any of this it shit? Happens. Yeah, it was yeah. Not, that would not be so helpful. Yeah. It happens. And she was delighted. She read it over the weekend, kind oh, of express nice. shipped it, and then kind of went into her meeting feeling confident. Her kickoff, her first kickoff. Well, that's awesome. Yeah. Thank you for doing that. Changing lives, Dan. Yeah, changing, changing lives. lives. Yeah. Thank you so much. This has been a, a fantastic conversation. I'm glad we we all resolved all of our various arguments, and I feel like we made no compromises. We did. They're not arguments. It's conflict. Conflict is good. Now we both we we but we, we came to a good, healthy resolution. Are you arguing with me about my definition of conflict resolution? Always. Fantastic. Always and forever. Yeah. And scene. <laughs> And we'll see you next time. This has been The Voice of Design. I disagree. This season, we're asking the question, what is the job of a designer? What is the job of a designer? Send your responses to us on Twitter at VOD underscore R-O-C-K-S VOD rocks. Or you can send us an email to VOD, V-O-D at muledesign.com. 